The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is The Christian's Conflict. The Christian's Conflict, Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. And this morning, as we come to Romans 7, we now return to our consideration of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, where we have been working now for several weeks in the text of chapter 7, where Paul's primary concern at this point in the development of the letter, in the development of his argument, is the Christian's ongoing relationship to the law of God. And that ongoing relationship to the law of God in the context of the Christian's relationship or ongoing resistance against remaining sin. There were many in Paul's day, and there are many in our own day, who would insist that the Christian has no ongoing relationship with the law of God. They would ground their arguments in an unbiblical view of faith, an unbiblical view of justification, Uh, There are those who would insist that when Christ fulfilled the law, that Christ set aside the law. And they argue in ignorance that the moral law of God, which is the transcript of his very character, has no bearing at all on the life of a Christian. All the law can do is accuse. All the law can do is to bring forth death and condemnation. There are others who would insist that because we are no longer under the condemnation of the law, that we have been, quote, freed, unquote, from obeying it, when in fact we have been set free from our bondage to sin that we might obey it. Still others would say that because sin takes opportunity through the law, or because the law is used to provoke within us all manner of concupiscence, all manner of sinful desire, that the law itself is somehow sinful or evil. That the law is an instrument of sin or an instrument of death. Paul answers in our text, absolutely not, may it never be. The thought is absurd. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Now Paul has written to us, speaking of all these things in all of his epistles, as Peter says, in which admittedly there are some things that are hard to understand, but these are arguments raised by untaught and unstable people who twist the words of Paul to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And so in Romans chapter 7, Paul is compelled, compelled to write in defense of the law of God. Paul's intention in our text is to vindicate the law from these unbiblical and ungodly objections. Now the defense of the law that Paul puts forward is intensely personal. Paul transitions, if you'll notice in your text, Paul transitions from his standard use of second and third person pronouns in the opening of the chapter to a description now of his own personal experience and the use of first person pronouns in verse 7. Grammar is important, right? He uses his own experience now, I, me, my. He uses his own experience as an illustration He says, I would not have known sin except through the law. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, Paul said, and by it killed me. Sin was producing death in me, Paul said, through what is good. In verses 7 through 13, you'll also note there 
Paul's use of the past tense. To speak of a time in his past when the law of God was first brought to bear upon his conscience. A time when having been brought to bear upon his conscience that Paul died under the condemnation of the law. An experience that led to Paul's own conversion. Now through this intensely personal defense, through reliance upon his own personal experience, Paul demonstrates to us two very important points. One, his past experience of being brought into the law as an unconverted man is the common experience of all of those who are converted to Christ. We've all been there, haven't we? The commandment brings forth death, revealing the depth of our need before the healing balm of the gospel issues forth in life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you've never seen or experienced, had an experiential sense of the depth of your own need, I would call you to question whether you've been converted at all. Two, the problems that we face in our ongoing relationship to the law of God cannot be rooted or grounded in the nature of the law itself, but rather must be rooted or grounded in the depravity of man. The problem isn't the law, the problem is us. The law cannot justify. We can't attain to a right stating before God through the law. The law is powerless to change us. We cannot be sanctified through the law. The law does, however, reveal our sin. It reveals our sin to be exceedingly sinful. And it reveals the heart of man to be a cesspool of iniquity. Now from Paul's use then of the past tense in verses 7 through 13, Paul then transitions to his use of the present tense in verses 14 through 25. Paul continues now to speak of his own personal experience. His defense is still personal. But now, instead of speaking of past experience, Paul begins to speak of present experience. Paul's objective remains to vindicate the law of God as holy, just, and good. But now, his own personal experience is drawn from present circumstance and the intense ongoing battle that is now taking place within his own heart and soul. We see that poured out, laid out in the text of Scripture under our consideration this morning. Now what we find now in the account of Paul, verses 14 to 25, is certainly the personal experience of the apostle. But more than that, we find that it is his personal experience as a Christian man in his ongoing relationship to remaining sin and to the law of God. And not only, not only Paul's personal experience as a Christian man, but Paul's personal experience as a mature Christian man in his ongoing relationship to sin and to the law of God. This is late in Paul's ministry as he writes. And through the reliance, again now, through the reliance upon his own personal experience, Paul will continue to demonstrate two very important points. One, the experience of Paul as a mature Christian man is the common experience of all Christians who are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we find in our text this morning is the experience of every genuine Christian. This is such as is common to man. Two, the law cannot sanctify us. The law is powerless to deliver us from sin. The law cannot set us free from our battle with remaining sin. However, the problem is not with us, not with the law. The problem is with us. The problem is with our remaining sin, our remaining corruption. And the only hope 
that we have to be progressively delivered from the presence of sin in the Christian life are the blessings and benefits of our salvation, hard won by the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross and applied by the Spirit through faith. It's our only hope. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that the law was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. With that understanding... We come to our text. We take up our text this morning. I've planned for us to consider this text under four headings this morning and next, maybe even a third. Uh, And an outline is going to help us as we follow the flow of Paul's argument. This is a very important, very critical text. Here's our outline. One, we'll consider our present conduct, verses 14 and 15. Two, we'll consider our present corruption, verses 16 through 20. Three, our present conflict, verses 21 to 23. And four, our present confidence, verses 24 and 25. Now, think with me. We're going to have to put our thinking caps on this morning. We pick up Paul's defense of the law then in verse 14. Point one on your notes, our present conduct. Look at 14 with me. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, Paul says, am carnal, sold under sin. Now, to begin, it's really, really important to understand how verse 14 connects to what comes before. Notice verse 13. Verse First, notice first, verse 13 is connected to the prior paragraph. If you're reading the New King James or the ESV, you have to ignore the really terrible paragraph break at verse 13. There is no paragraph break at verse 13. Paul makes the statement in verse 9 that he was alive once without the law, But when the commandment came, sin revived and he died. Verse 10, Paul says the commandment, which was to bring life, he found to bring death. He then explains himself, verse 11 and 12, and concludes the paragraph with a review question of sorts in verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Do you see the connection of verse 13 to what goes before? Verse 13 summarizes or sums up the verses that come before. It's all one thought. Paul's answer, certainly not, but sin, in a summary statement, sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. That pushes verse 13 back up with the first paragraph, and dealing with the text, uh, verses 1 through 7, or excuse me, um, 13, dealing with 13 through 13 there. Now, verse 14. Verse 14 then begins a new paragraph and a transition to a new thought. It's a new thought, but it's a related thought. Think with me. The word translated for at the beginning of 14, again, this grammar is important. We'll see why. The word translated for at the beginning of verse 14 is a conjunction. Conjunction, junction. What's your... Hooking up words and phrases and clauses, right? My age, you know exactly what... I'm referring to. You youngsters have no idea. (laughs) So listen, the conjunction, that word translated for, hooks up (laughs) verse 14 to the the prior paragraph. Hooks up verse 14 to what goes before. Now the connection, that connection there, that conjunction can be causative 
In other words, it's um, a causative relationship to verse 13. Verse 13, the law is good, my sin is sinful. Verse 14, because we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. It can be causative. And Paul, if it's causative, Paul simply continues the same train of thought as before. He switches to the present tense here for what most would say is dramatic or literary effect. And Paul continues now to speak of himself when he was unconverted. That's at stake in your interpretation of the conjunction that begins verse 14. Or, rather than causative, that conjunction can be continuative or continuous. And Paul transitions now to a new, but to a related thought. Now, for those studying the language, the conjunction there is a post-positive gar. The first word in the sentence, the first word in the sentence, we can all relate to this, is the verb we know. That's the very first in the sentence. We know. Now notice there the striking change now to the present tense. Not past tense now, but a transition to the present tense. And notice the use of the plural we rather than the singular I. The conjunction is the second word in the sentence and can be translated then. So a good way to translate the continuative nature of the conjunction would be this. We know then that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The grammar, very important. And what is Paul doing? What is Paul saying? He's reflecting with us on how his past experience in verses 7 through 13, where he proves that the law wasn't to blame for his sin or his death under the law, it was his sin that took advantage of the law and deceived him and by it killed him. The law is holy, just, and good. And then Paul takes that lesson learned from his past experience and he now applies it with us in the presence in verse 14. We know then, don't we? After all that we've learned in the first part of this chapter, we know then, don't we? Notice the continuous conjunction. We know then, don't we? From our past experience, when we were lost, we know then that the law is of or pertaining to the spirit while I am fleshly, having been sold or having been subjected to the power of sin. Think with me now. The transition to the present isn't merely for dramatic literary effect. Paul moves from speaking of the past to now speaking only of the present. And we're going to see present tense verbs throughout the rest of our passage. He will now flesh out, so to speak, in his present experience as a Christian man, the present tense implications of those two realities. The law is of or pertaining to the life of the spirit, but I, Paul says, still live with the flesh, what he will later refer to as this body of death. Now, this is the natural reading of the text. Flows from one to the next, flows from past to present. This is the natural reading of the text. Paul could have easily continued in the past tense, couldn't he? But he did not continue in the past tense. He brought that into the future, brought that into the present. The shift from the past tense in verses 7 through 13 to the present tense in verses 14 through 25, along with um, a good understanding of the connection between verses 13 and 14, Two key factors among many in a biblical interpretation of this text. We'll consider other of those factors as we work through the passage. Why is that so important? 
This is one of those texts among many, many in the Bible, where grammar, a diligent study is necessary, absolutely necessary to, pre, to precisely handle the text of Scripture, to precisely understand what the text is saying. We have what the text says. We need to understand what the text means by what it says. God has spoken. What does God mean by what God has said? Okay? And we need to be diligent in how we approach the text of Scripture to be precise with our theology so that we don't fall into error. There's a lot that hangs on our interpretation of this passage. What, why is it so important? Because the way that you interpret Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, will have a dramatic effect on the way in which you understand and live the Christian life. A dramatic effect. Whether you view this text, brother or sister, as the mercy and grace of God to you, that fuels your faith, that bolsters your assurance, as you live and fight in faith with the Apostle Paul himself against your sin, whether it's strong consolation in the fact that Paul himself is embattled as I am, is embattled as you are. And Paul himself is now teaching us with him. He's teaching us to fight, to understand the fight, how to fight, causing me, causing you to look to Jesus Christ in faith. It's the view, the only view that's consistent with the grammar. It's the only view that is consistent with the context. It's the view that is consistent with the natural reading of the text. It's the only view that is consistent with a biblical understanding of the Christian life as the believer continues to deal with the remaining presence of sin. Or, or you view this text as only possibly consistent with the life and experience of a lost person. Do you see what's at stake? At stake? The text has no connection to your present battle with sin. Even your present desires for holiness and righteousness. In fact, in fact, this text becomes an indictment of any struggle against the flesh. And reason for which you would be more inclined in your affliction to resign yourself to the further condemnation of the law rather than to the compassionate pity of his grace. How you understand and apply this text makes a difference, as it does with all of the texts in Holy Scripture. Paul is speaking here in the present tense of his own experience, the experience of a mature Christian man, the experience of the, the Christian life. And there is great help for you here, brother. There is great help, great encouragement, great consolation here for you, sister, as you live your Christian life. He's already promised that sin will not have dominion over you. There is a victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. He always leads us in triumph. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But on this side of eternity, we must hold these glorious truths in tandem, in tension with the fact that we have remaining indwelling sin to deal with, to contend with. We have remaining corruption that we must resist, where we must mortify the flesh, where we must put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, where we must be about killing sin or else sin will be killing us. Back to point one, our present conduct, verse 14, for, for we know, present tense, we know as a result of what has come before, 
as a result of past experience, as a result of verses 7 through 13, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, present tense, carnal, sold under sin. Paul speaking in the present tense of his ongoing relationship to the law of God. And he refers to the law in verse 14 as spiritual. In describing the law of God as spiritual, Paul refers both to the character of the law and its source. First, in referring to its character, the law is of or pertaining to the life of the spirit. It's a statement essentially synonymous with what goes before. Paul's former statement that the law is holy and just and good. The law of God is an expression of the very life and being and character of God. And in that sense, the law is an expression in contrast with the very life and character and being of man. The law is holy. The law is just. The law is good. By definition, holy is the very antithesis of sin, the opposite of sin, as we saw before. The law is just. In fact, the law defines and distinguishes that which is just from that which is unjust, that which is righteous from that which is unrighteous. The law is just in its demands, and the law is just in its sanctions. Finally, the law is good. The law is an expression of God's own goodness toward us. Good in the purpose for which it is given. Good in rightly and necessarily regulating the relationship between creator and creature. Good in prescribing for man what was to lead to his happiness and joy. Good in promoting man's highest well-being. Good in that it displays or reflects God's perfect goodness, right? It displays or reflects God's perfections of his own love, doesn't it? Think with me. Reflected by the law in terms of the the love that we are to show toward him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the love that we are to show our neighbor, loving our neighbor as ourselves. That love that is expressed in the law reflects the very perfection of love that is God. So the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual in the sense that the law is an expression of God himself. Secondly, the law is spiritual in reference to his source. The law of God, it is the law of God. God is spirit, and therefore the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. So that word spiritual, verse 14 then, pertaining to the spirit, an expression of God's own life and character, is intended then to be viewed now in contrast with what we know of man. In contrast with the word carnal or fleshly in verse 14. I would submit to you, we cannot understand carnal or fleshly and what Paul is saying here, apart from the contrast with that word spiritual. These two things are set in opposition to one another. That word carnal pertaining to the character or nature of man. Paul states in the text, the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Some might say unspiritual. The contrast is significant. And Paul doesn't stop there. Not only am I carnal, Paul says, he says, I've been sold. That's perfect tense, passive voice, meaning past completed action. In the past, I was sold or delivered over to sin placed in subjection to sin. 
How in the world can Paul speak of himself in this way? I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, we're going to get there, that to be carnally minded is death. The carnal mind, chapter 8 verse 7, is enmity. Enmity against God. But you notice Paul's not saying that he's carnally minded. He's certainly not saying that he is at enmity with God. But of those, those in chapter 8 would in fact describe a lost person. Paul is not saying that he's lost. In fact, Paul says, think with me, verse 15, the sin that I find myself doing, I hate. How many lost sinners hate their sin? Verse 16, I agree with the law that it is good. Uh, Strike two. (laughs) Verse 18, he knows that nothing good dwells in his flesh. How many lost people evaluate themselves along those lines? I know there's nothing good in me that is in my flesh. Verse 21, he wills to do good. Verse 22, he delights in the law of God according to his inward man. Verse 23, the law of sin is warring against the law of his mind. Brother, sister, when you were converted, when did that war begin? After you were converted. (laughs) There was no war taking place before you were converted. Verse 25, with his mind, he serves the law of God. What is Paul's condition? Verses 14 to 25, Paul is a mature Christian man. What in the world is Paul saying? The law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Those, verses 15, 16, 18, 20, those are not the meditations of a lost man. So what does Paul mean? Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The key to understanding the text lies in the contrast between that which is spiritual and that which is flesh. Paul is saying that in contrast with the law that is spiritual, Paul is saying, I'm flesh. I'm fleshly. In contrast with the law that is spiritual, I see myself as unspiritual. The law is not only spiritual in the sense that it's good. The law is not only spiritual in the sense that its source is from God who is spirit. The law is spiritual in the sense that it reveals the heart of man. Do you see? Not merely his outward conduct, but the motives, the intents, the desires, the affections of his heart. And when Paul looks into the light of God's perfect law and he sees his own heart revealed there, how is he to respond? Brother, sister, how would you respond? His only response can be, the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly. Do you see? There's a proverb that came to mind that I think can help us with understanding Paul's heart here. And it's Proverbs 20, verse 27. You can turn there with me if you like. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27. Proverbs 20, verse 27 says this. The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. We're talking about that which is spiritual. We're talking about the the depths of man's heart. We're talking about the light of God's law. When the law of God is uh, applied by the spirit of God, when the law of God illuminates the lamp, if you will, of man's spirit, 
when the law applied by the spirit causes the lamp of man's spirit to shine, it reveals or exposes not only the outward conduct of his hands or the outward direction of his feet or the outward communication of his lips, but it searches and exposes and reveals the innermost recesses of his sinful heart. Literally there, it's his belly, his gut. (laughs) It's in this way that the law is also spiritual, do you see? The law is spiritual in that it reveals or exposes the inner depths of man's heart. Charles Bridges adds this. Now let me ask, let me ask the question. When God causes his candle to shed a clearer light, who can abide it? Can I abide it? Do I welcome the hateful discoveries which it brings out? Do I value its light as opening the secret business of communion between a sinner and a jealous holy God? Oh, let there be no inward part of my soul where I am not willing most earnestly to bring the lamp of the law that all secret indulgences may be searched out and mortified. The lost man hates the light. He'd rather his deeds remain in darkness. Who is it who does the truth, who loves the truth? Those who come to the light, that their deeds may be shown as being done in God. But what does that one say? Who, the one who loves truth, when he looks by the light of that spiritual law at the inner depths of his own heart, what does he say? I'm fleshly. I see within myself a contrast. I have been sold. I've been subjected to, delivered under sin. I know, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And evil is present with me, even though I will to do good. God has changed my will. I will to do good. I delight in the law. But there is this this principle of sin that lurks within my flesh. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hebrews would say, for the word of God is living and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. Paul describes himself then in contrast with the perfect and holy law of God. He describes himself as fleshly or carnal. Paul is not referring to reigning sin as one who lives in the flesh, but Paul is speaking of remaining sin as one who continues to be fleshly. The word used for carnal can refer to the body in a physical sense, or it can be used to convey a moral or an ethical meaning. Clearly, the word used here is moral. It speaks of the experience the experienced presence of remaining corruption or indwelling sin in the life of a true believer. In comparison to the perfect law, characterized as spiritual, I am fleshly. And in an explanatory sense, I am sold or delivered under sin. 
Paul refers to that which is carnal in Romans chapter 8 and describes a lost person, carnally minded, at enmity with God. Paul also uses the word carnal in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to describe the saved Corinthians, believers in the church at Corinth who were immature. Carnal doesn't always um, pertain to a lost person, and frankly, it doesn't always pertain to an immature person. There are ways in which Paul sees now as a mature Christian man that in contrast with the law that is holy, just, and good, he is fleshly. That verb translated sold, sold, is in the perfect tense, the passive voice. It refers to an action completed in the past, but that action completed in the past now has present effect in his life. Paul is referring to the reality of Romans chapter 5. By the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Notice the passive. By the one man's disobedience, we were sold under sin. Fallen in our identification with Adam, we have been delivered to or subjected to sin. Although we have been freed from now in the gospel through our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been freed from slavery to sin. We've been freed from sin's ultimate power, authority, or dominion. But remaining sin, remaining corruption, continues to exert its influence, doesn't it? seeks to exert its power while we strive to walk in newness of life. That's what causes the war to take place in the Christian life. I heard um, an illustration that I think is, is helpful. Imagine for a moment that a single man hires a maid to clean up the house for him. We know single guys generally do a pretty terrible job of that. He senses the need for someone to help him. So... Rightly so. So this single man hires a maid to help clean up the house for him. Uh, for good reason, for good reason, this good man gives clear instruction regarding what she is to do and how she is to do it. He's not there often and wants her to follow his instructions and clean the house as he's asking her to. He's paying her for the service. So he leaves detailed notes for her around the house. Do this. Don't do that. Be careful that you don't forget to. Make sure that you do this. Now, at first, the maid is entirely resentful of this kind of control. She's bitter over all of those notes. She's even angry over all of the rules. And every time she sees one of those notes, she bristles. And just the sight of that note provokes within her concupiscence, <laughs> this, this desire to do exactly what the note, in fact, to do exactly what the note says not to do, and then to crumple that note and throw it in the trash, right? She will even determine sometimes to break those rules so that she won't feel subjected to him. Until one day, for some reason unknown to the woman, for the very first time, she sees the man as good. For the very first time, she sees his rules and his helps as care for and love for her. And she falls in love with a man and they get married. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly, with a new perspective, those notes don't bother her at all anymore. In fact, she sees all of those notes as a way to love him and to serve him and to express her gratitude to him and her joy in him as her bridegroom. She delights in them. She delights in them. She wants to obey them. The house is now hers. <laughs> she, 
She no longer simply cleans as a servant, as a hired maid. She now works as his bride. But still, still, she notices within herself that even though she now loves the man, loves working for him, she still notices this deplorable tendency within herself to bristle against his instructions, to bristle against the rules. She doesn't want to act that way. She doesn't want to act that way. And she doesn't understand why she continues to do what she does. The tendency deeply grieves her heart. He's been so good to her. How can she continue to show such contempt for him? She is, in fact, his wife. She takes great joy in being his bride, in serving him as he has asked her to do. And though she is his wife, she acknowledges there's something within her that continues to think and act like that old maid. Paul expresses it in this way in verse 15. What I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that's what I do. Do you see? Brother, sister, do you not see yourself in this experience of Paul? Do you not see yourself in the text? We all must acknowledge the reality of some degree of ongoing carnality in the midst of our Christian life. Don't we? It doesn't mean that sin is reigning in the way that it previously was. That pattern has been interrupted, interrupted with love and joy and gratitude and delight. But it does mean that sin is remaining. And it will remain as long as we are in this flesh. Paul is not saying here that he's unconverted. Paul is not describing himself here as an unconverted man. Paul is not asserting that he is back under the dominion of sin. What he is saying regarding his conduct is that when the spotlight of the law reveals his own sin, when the lamp of the law illuminates the recesses of his own heart, the only acceptable judgment that he can render concerning his continuing condition is that I am fleshly, I am carnal, sold under sin. The response is as much a response of raw emotion over his remaining sin as it is a matter of fact. It's not just a matter of fact, it's a matter of raw, raw emotion, right? I don't understand my own sin, verse 15. What I want to do, I don't do. The very things that I now hate, that's what I find myself doing. You can hear in the text, can't you? Paul's anguish. He has been unable, unable in every case, unable to live up to the standard of righteousness on which he has set his heart. He has been unable to live up to that standard of righteousness in which he delights he has been unable to live in full conformity with the one whom has his heart, the one who has his heart, the one who holds his heart in his hands. 
It certainly doesn't reflect the whole of Paul's Christian experience, does it? Paul commands us to be joyful. And again, I say rejoice. But there are times, aren't there? Christian, put yourself in the text. Put your own name in the place of those pronouns and tell me that this isn't expressly true of you. If you're a genuine Christian, you'll affirm that it is. Verse 14, for we know, brothers and sisters, we know that the law is spiritual, but I, Mark, am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Is that not true of you? If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. Amen. It's holy, just, and good. But now... It is no longer I who do it, but sin. There's this principle in the faculties of my soul that now wages war against the law of my mind. I delight in the law of God that it is holy, just, and good. But I see this evil present with me. Do you see? I know that in me, that in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will, to will is present. But how to perform, I do not find. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Is that not the cry of every Christian man or woman, boy or girl, on this side of eternity? Free me. Lord, come quickly. What are we to do? Paul is going to encourage us to continue fighting in faith. This is the reality. The presence of remaining sin, remaining corruption, this is the reality. But we have glorious promises, don't we? A glorious charge, a glorious mandate. Sin will not have dominion over you. We can take joy in progress, can't we? Take joy in our sanctification. Take joy in the fact that God, in grace to you and in grace to me, is progressively separating us from the presence of sin in our own lives. Take joy in that, knowing that one day that will be done with forever. When we see him as he is, don't lose heart, brother. Don't shrink back, sister. Keep swinging the sword. Cast all of your hope on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope and stay. A day is coming. A day is coming when you and I will be delivered. Delivered forever from this. John Owen Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of thy sin. Not going to be done in your own effort. You're not going to white knuckle it and grit it out in your own strength. If you're losing the battle, it's because you're not fighting in faith. Set faith at work upon Christ for the killing of thy sin. His blood is the great Sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this, and thou wilt die a conqueror. Yea, thou wilt, through the good providence of God, live to see thy lust dead at thy feet. Praise God. Hasten the day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord... Come quickly.
we hasten your glorious appearing, the blessed hope of the church. And we thank you, Lord, that you have justified us through faith. You have cleansed us of our sin, paid the penalty. It was due our sin. Seated us in the heavenly places, adopted us in your household, made us heir and co-heirs with Christ. And even now, Lord, in the gracious work of your spirit, you are sanctifying us further and further, separating us from our sin. May we rejoice, rejoice in those precious truths, precious promises that sin will not have dominion over us, that we are not enslaved to sin, that we can reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin, dead to the law, dead to what we were held by, so that we might be married to another who is Christ. And help us, Lord, that even as we rejoice in those things, we understand that it's a solemn joy, a sober joy, remembering um, this inward battle, this war against remaining corruption. And may we never become complacent or sluggardly in our offensive uh, to be mortifying the deeds of the body, or killing sin. Help us, Lord, to fight with the Apostle Paul. Grow within our heart a holy hatred for our sin. Uh, and grow within us, cultivate within us a great love and a great gratitude for all that you've done for us. And help us, Lord, by faith uh, to fight the battle such that as you've charged us, we may hold our confidence firm to the end, persevere to the end that we might be saved. May you receive all the glory, Lord, when in that day, fully uh, unfettered by sin, glorified with the saints when we see you as you are, may you be praised and worshiped and honored in eternity as our great King and Savior. We love you. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.